This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. In this edition of the Yonkazine Brief, we interview Colonel James E. Williams, who was awarded the American Association for Cancer Research 2018 Distinguished Public Service Award for Exceptional Leadership in Cancer Advocacy for his patient advocacy efforts in oncology. In our interview today, William discusses the challenges faced in the treatment, prevention, and screening of prostate cancer. Being a cancer survivor himself, he offers a unique perspective into the challenges and the need to be met now and in the future of oncology. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Yonkersin Brief. The American Association for Cancer Research presents special recognition awards to four individuals every year. The award recipients are recognized for making extraordinary contributions to accelerating the prevention and cure of cancers through research, education, communication, and collaboration. This year, the American Association for Cancer Research awarded Colonel James E. Williams with the 2018 Distinguished Public Service Award for Exceptional Leadership in Cancer Advocacy. Williams is a retired Army colonel who has served in the Vietnam War. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 1991 and, after defeating the disease, began to make efforts to educate men about the disease. His efforts include serving as a member of the Editorial Advisory Board of the AACR's Cancer Today magazine, serving as chairman of the board of the Intercultural Cancer Council, serving as chairman of the Pennsylvania Prostate Cancer Coalition, participating on the Patient Advocacy Committee of the Alliance for Clinical Trials in Oncology, and serving as a board member of the Alliance for Prostate Cancer Prevention. Colonel Williams spoke with us about his experience and how advocating for better and more helpful relationships between patients and doctors, more education for the public, and why new prostate screening tools in development are all crucial factors in reducing cancer-related deaths. We interviewed Colonel Williams at this year's American Association for Cancer Research annual meeting, which took place April 14th through 18th, 2018, in Chicago, Illinois. Let's listen. Here with me, Colonel James E. Williams, who received the AACR 2018 Distinguished Public Service Award for Exceptional Leadership in Cancer Advocacy. Colonel Williams, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Uh, Yes, I'm a retired uh, Army colonel. I spent 25 years as an infantry and artillery uh, colonel. I retired and went into Human Resources Administration. I retired from that career and went into health uh, advocacy for prostate cancer. Now, when you talk about prostate cancer, um, it's a, a big issue. Um, why did you um, get involved in advocacy uh, efforts? In 1991, I was diagnosed with uh, prostate cancer. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, I had a wife who insisted that I go see a doctor. I'm a private pilot, so I was getting flight physicals every three years, but she wanted me to go to the our family physician because other members in the family were also going. And I did that. And fortunately for me, the primary care physician's father had been diagnosed with prostate cancer. So this is 1991, and he introduced into the blood work a fairly new uh, tool called PSA. Uh, Back in that time, the the magic number was four. 
Uh, if your number was under four PSA, you're okay. And if you were over four, then you would be uh, usually referred to a specialist. My number was 11. Oh. And so being African-American uh, with a PSA number 11, uh, I was referred to a urologist. One of the problems we have with this disease is that uh, depending on which path the patient is put on, that's usually the course of action taken. Uh, urologist, of course, is a surgeon. But this urologist insisted that not only did I hear what he had to say after discovering the, the cancer to biopsy, but he also suggested to go see a radiologist because they looked at the world differently than I do. And then he also said, I want you to talk to an oncologist because they deal with all kinds of cancers. And I also want you to go to Mayo Clinic because they're doing a lot of surgery up there. Living in Chicago, it was uh, where there's many fine uh, hospitals, uh, we took the trip to Mayo Clinic. Fell in love with Mayo Clinic and had surgery there. Uh, They're quite aggressive at Mayo Clinic at that time. Uh, The surgery revealed that I had positive margins. Uh, and although the surgeon said he did not see any cancer in the prostate bed, he suggested that I go on hormonotherapy. So I really had two treatments, surgery and uh, hormonotherapy. Not only that, uh, being retired military, I had a health care plan called TRICARE for Life that covered the costs. And because of that journey, uh, I've been cancer-free for 27 years. Unfortunately, uh, I think everybody in America, men who have to face the disease, should have been on the same course that I was on. Unfortunately, that isn't the case. After having that treatment, uh, my wife located an organization called Us Two International. It was a fairly new organization in Chicago of prostate cancer uh, men who had metastatic disease, and since there is no gold standard for that disease, or what you do after it's metastasized, they had come together looking for what is the latest science uh, in prostate cancer. And so I joined that group and discovered there were very few uh, minorities within that group, uh, and then started a course on something called patient advocacy, which was very new in, in 1991. Now, what did patient advocacy um, in these early days actually involve? Yeah, that's a great question because my observation was in the early days, patient advocacy were usually a group of people who have had some uh, disfavor uh, with the medical community or with the treatment that they had, and they had come together to uh, see if they could correct the wrongs that occurred to them. And as we involved, we found that patient advocacy had a voice, or we thought we had a voice. That just because you were diagnosed with cancer did not make you brain dead, and that no. you brought a life experiences to the table. And we thought we could be play some role uh, in, in the discovery of uh, a cancer cure. So we got more involved uh, in many aspects of cancer care. And uh, AACR is a perfect example of that because they created a survivor scientist program trying to bring the patient and the scientists together and form some kind of partnership or at least a venue where we both could communicate to see we could find some common ground in trying to defeat this disease. Now, when you talk about a partnership between patients and the medical profession, 
um, that can be at times very difficult. It can be very difficult because we look at the world differently than the, the people, the scientists that we're dealing with. Uh, I, I marvel and applaud people who will spend their whole life on, are so focused that they will spend their type on uh, a cell line. Mm-hmm. Okay. But in, in doing that, uh, sometimes we forget that there's a body where that right. cell line came from. And so we start getting involved in such things as clinical trials and the informed consent. Uh, and because of the liability these days, it's ended up being all lawyer's language. And the patient or who has to sign it before they can go forward really didn't understand what was going on. So we, we insisted that lay language be included in the f- informed consent so that the patient really knew what they were getting into. Uh, there would be a side effect language, but they wouldn't tell the patient what happens if these side effects occur. Do I go to emergency ward? Do I make a phone call? And so we try to bring the human aspect from a patient's point into the scientific work that's being done and see if we could integrate the two. Our guest today is Colonel James E. Williams, who earlier this year was awarded the American Association for Cancer Research 2018 Distinguished Public Service Award for Exceptional Leadership in Cancer Advocacy for his patient advocacy efforts in oncology. After our break, we'll continue our interview with Colonel James E. Williams. Nancy G. Brinker, founder of the Susan G. Komen for the Cure, talking to the Oncozine Brief on Independent Talk 1100 KFNX. There's such an evolution going on today. We now have reached a point where if this generation of young scientists cannot cure cancer in the next decade, it just can't be cured because the tools are developed. The ideas are sound. Outsmarting cancer, advancing medical science together. And welcome back. This is The Youngers in Brief. I'm Peter Hofland here with Sonia Portillo, back with Colonel James E. Williams. Unfortunately, not every patient understands the doctor lingo. And uh, uh, sometimes uh, it's a great way to hide behind if it's difficult to explain yeah. uh, some of the, 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 the and, language in that respect. And, and the other thing is, because we're, we're getting so technically proficient, uh, I, you know, you go into the doctor's office and you see a physician, and they spend most of their time looking at the computer. Right. Uh, and I say, you know, you need to look eye to eye to the patient. You may even need to touch him. Uh, but because of the requirement to put to review the data and to record it electronically, et cetera, there's a it's there's a break uh, between the patient and the physician. So if you look at um, your own treatment. And if you look at uh, your experience, not, not only as a patient, but also in, uh, in advocacy, um, what would you recommend men who are confronted with something like prostate cancer? Um, what is your advice? And, and what would be maybe different in your, what you suggest to them? That's, that's a great question. There is no gold standard on treating prostate cancer. So we say that the patient should be exposed to all possible choices that they have. And in today's uh, situation, it might be surgery, it might be radiation, uh, it might be chemotherapy, hormonal therapy, or active surveillance or watch and wait. Uh, Unfortunately, 
most patients are not exposed to all aspects of it. Uh, and so uh, we, the good news is that we find the cancer early. The bad news is we find the cancer early. And in many cases, because we do, we don't know what to do. Uh, and the patient has to be involved because at the end of the day, the patient makes the decision as to what road he's going to take. Right. So we're going to take a little break uh, right now, and then we'll be back um, after the break uh, with uh, Colonel Williams. So um, we have about nine minutes right now, roughly. Um, and then after the break, we will uh, continue. I will then introduce you in the uh, in the part that we actually record in the studio, we, uh, either Sonia or me uh, will introduce you again, and then um, we will go on with um, some of the other questions. Is it going okay for so far? Well, I think so. Okay. I think so. You, you speak well in the microphone, that is good, because I mean, that's the key thing. I mean, it's n nobody can see you, so you, you need to um, 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 do some, something here. Um, we don't have that many questions anymore. I mean, but, but I think it's two major ones, mm -hmm. so can can really okay. uh, talk about about some of those stuff. The first one will be about the Department of Defense funding. So after we introduce you, uh, like that. as a former military officer and a prostate uh, survivor, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, the Department of Defense funding for prostate cancer research, uh, including its history, um, the, the, the funding that's being actually done, and the impact. It, it, to me, it sounds um, um, sometimes a little bit illogic that an organization like a defense or military organization is so much involved in clinical and medical research. Yes, uh, many people ask because I was involved in the first DOD prostate cancer uh, funding activity. Why would the Department of Defense be in this activity? My understanding is that uh, because of the cohort of the military, uh, its diversity in population and age, that it would be a perfect venue for the Department of Defense to seek out uh, uh, possible uh, patients or, or survivors or just men in general and focus on the disease for prostate cancer. As a result of my experiences in Vietnam, uh, I've been able to get a slight disability because they've connected uh, Agent Orange with prostate cancer. So because U.S. servicemen and women are exposed to all types of toxics, agents, and venues, that's why I think the DOD got involved in, in into prostate cancer. Uh, since its inception, which is in the late 90s, uh, we've been able to secure uh, up to $100 million a year for DOD uh, research. And what I like about the program is that DOD attempts to uh, put their money for prostate cancer research uh, in uh, those uh, areas that are not being currently funded. Uh, they also try to seek out uh, support for young postdocs uh, who are coming up with some great ideas but have very little data uh, to support it. Uh, they also work with uh, some of the minority institutions, especially the HBCUs, uh, who have a very special interest in disparities. 
but in many cases do not have the infrastructure or the resources to further pursue it. And there's been so they've attempted to support some of those HBCUs who want to uh, participate in in cancer research. Now. You mentioned um, um, the unique role that the Department of Defense plays in this case. How are you collaborating or how is the Department of Defense collaborating with, for example, the National Cancer Institute uh, or with other organizations like the AACR or other research organizations um, and clinicians in general? I, I really cannot give you specific information on that, but there's a, a push from the patient advocacy community that all these organizations need to uh, be more cooperative. One of the problems in, in the science culture is sharing data, mm-hmm. uh, and we need to do a lot more in that, and we need to have more collaborative efforts. And, and when you look at collaborate efforts, what, what is your desire in that respect? What would you like to see? Well, what I would like to see, of course, is that in, in prostate cancer, we need a, uh, a screening tool that is uh, more effective than the current screening tool. And there's a lot in the pipeline, but uh, we, we're not there yet. And so a lot of people are working on a, the same thing in a lot of venues uh, I belonged uh, and was active with Stand Up for Cancer uh, at one time. And one of the big things that came out of that movement was that the women uh, who started that, and they were mostly Hollywood producers, etc., insisted that uh, if they were going to give uh, their dream team money to research, that the dream teams had to come across, to come together and collaborate and share data. Uh, and I know at our first meetings, uh, the scientists would say to us, you don't understand the culture. We don't do that. And then women said, well, then you don't get the money. <laughs> and so there is an effort to try to push and collaborate and bring data together. Uh, because, you know, we take cancer, we're talking about over 200 diseases. Right. Uh, and now as we more look into precision medicine, we say, well, one shoe doesn't fit all. So there's still a lot of work to do, and we, we need to communicate better. We have better communications tools, uh, and so I'm hoping that happens. Our guest today is Colonel James E. Williams, who earlier this year was awarded the American Association for Cancer Research 2018 Distinguished Public Service Award for Exceptional Leadership in Cancer Advocacy for his patient advocacy efforts in oncology. After a break, we'll continue our interview with Colonel James E. Williams. I'm Sonny Portillo, here with Peter Hoffland, and this is the Oncazine Brief. Dr. Angela DeMichel, Associate Professor at the Perlman Center for Advanced Medicine, talking to the Oncazine Brief on Independent Talk 1100, KFNX. And the idea that we can target tumor cells both with antibodies that have specific and unique activities on extracellular receptors, but also use them as a drug delivery device. Outsmarting Cancer, advancing medical science together. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others, huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. 
Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us. Welcome back to the Oncazine Brief. I'm Sonny Portillo, here with Peter Hoffland, back with Colonel James E. Williams. We're talking with Colonel Williams about being awarded the American Association of Cancer Research 2018 a Distinguished Public Service Award for Exceptional Leadership in Cancer Advocacy, First Patient Advocacy Efforts in Oncology, and what patient advocacy actually means. So let's shift gears a little bit. I mean, in, um, earlier in the program, you refer to uh, disparities. Um, health disparities, uh, very often that in, um, is a racial disparity. Uh, it's not only in that case, but also socioeconomic uh, disparities, um, even geographic disparities where people may live in certain parts of the country where um, they may have to travel 200 miles to go to the nearest clinic uh, to get treatment. Um, f- from your perspective, um, can you paint a little bit of a picture about the problem, what it entails, and yeah. and, and how um, we may be able to solve some of the yeah. burning issues. Well, you know, unfortunately, we look at health disparities, and, and usually it's a black-white issue, or it's a rich-poor issue, et cetera. Uh, I belong to an organization called the Intercultural Cancer Council, ICC. Uh, to me, it's the most diverse group that we have in America. We have representations from the Pacific Rim, Guam, Yap, and Palau, and, and then the continental United States and Alaska and the Caribbean. Uh, And one of the large contentions is Appalachia. These are poor whites uh, who have as large a problem as poor blacks in urban America. And so when we talk about health disparities or when we talk about disparities, it's more than just racially. Mm -hmm. Uh, I talk to middle-class Americans who have a decent income but are diagnosed with cancer uh, and survive it, but the the treatment and the medicines and drugs are very, very costly, and they end up being bankrupt. And then now they are also fall into the health disparities area. So to me, health disparities is a broad spectrum within America, and we need to look at it not only racially because we we look at the data and we see that it's bigoted towards uh, poor and, and and blacks, but also we we also have a lot of other health disparities because we have a sick care system in America. We don't have a health care system, uh, and so we don't really attack these diseases until they have really mature. Even when we say uh, early grade cancer, it's already become a tumor it's established its own blood system and and so uh we need to get ahead of these things and and we including all parts of the population uh into uh, our fight is is critical right so um again about health disparities um when you when you look for example at the efforts that the american association of cancer research is is doing 
Um, is that an, an, an move in the right direction in, in, in trying to uh, push forward to include all people? I, I think it is. We, we, need, we need to do a, lo a lot more. It's encouraging at this conference that we're attending now to see a lot more minorities, uh, a lot more females, uh, a lot more younger people into it. Uh, I think, to, for instance, the cure for prostate cancer will be a breast cancer clinical trial on a Native American reservation. I mean, we have no idea where the cure will be if we are able to find one at all. So we need to bring all segments of our society uh, into it. And the more we bring people of different racial backgrounds uh, uh, and experience into it, I think that'll help us to find a cure. So it's not just a nice thing to do or the right thing to do. I think that's going to be the solution, the diversity that we should be, uh, in my mind, celebrating in this country. Many times we looked at it as a, uh, a venue for separation. Right. Well, it should be inclusive. It should be inclusive, right. yes. So... In, in uh, um, you mentioned something about clinical trials. Um, there are definitely a lot of clinical trials going on, also in prostate cancer. Um, often her heard is that if um, people um, may not have a cure or may not have um, a target or, or approach to uh, treatment, um, they should try or should try to ask a physician to be put in a clinical trial. Um, important. It's important, but the problem is 80% of people with cancer are treated in their local communities. But the clinical trials, unfortunately, in many cases, are not down into the community. So unless you live around a major medical center, you don't have uh, access to clinical trials. Uh, I've been dealing with this uh, advocacy and this kind of work for over 22 years. And 22 years ago, less than 5% of those who were eligible to enter clinical trials entered those trials. Well, today it hasn't really improved that much. Uh, we have to find a better way of getting trials down into the community uh, where the population is, where we can get the statistical power, the numbers we need to make the trials effective. So many trials are started and die because we weren't able to recruit sufficient people. One of the problems is, although there's, there's uh, monies allocated uh, to uh, venues to absorb and use clinical trials, it, the business of medicine prevents them from doing it because uh, the overhead is so large that it's not cost-effective for them to bring a clinical trial down into their practice. And so we can find a way where it's beneficial to the physician, uh, to the medicine business, uh, we're going to continue to have this problem of not getting sufficient numbers and types of people into clinical trials. 90% of our clinical trials never are approved for all kinds of reasons. It's a vast amount of money, uh, and we just need to do a, a better effort of marketing and uh, recruiting patients into the trials. And we have to do it from the patient advocacy point to show where it's beneficial to them. Uh, and not just to a pharmaceutical company or to a research, uh, sovereign research uh, question. Uh, and many times uh, 
the patient doesn't see the benefit uh, of participating, and so they don't. Right. Now, uh, as a last question uh, for uh, today, um, when you get up in the morning and uh, you go to a conference like uh, AACR, um, what excites you about the, the, the advocacy, about the research? Um, what are you looking forward to? Well, trying to talk to decision makers uh, to make them aware that there is an element out there called uh, men <laughs> who don't advocate for their health uh, and see how we can market all this good information that we learn here how can we market it back in the, in the community? Uh, I deal with men, and men take better care of their cars than they do their bodies. They, they take their car in for maintenance not because the car is sick, but because it's good maintenance. But we don't use the same idea about their bodies. And something like prostate cancer is a solid killer. Uh, and because we have a sick care program in America, people who, quote, think they are well don't go to the doctor. And so to sell that, at that concept that you need to go to the doctor when you're well, not when you're sick, is very hard. And so I'm still struggling with how do we market all the good information that's captured at a conference like this? And how does that make meaningful sense to a man in the community who fears the finger? Right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Colin Williams. Thank you. Prostate cancer is a common and frequently cause of cancer death. In the United States, prostate cancer is the most commonly diagnosed visceral cancer. According to the American Cancer Society, in 2018 there are expected to be approximately 165,000 new prostate cancer diagnoses and approximately 29,000 prostate cancer deaths. Prostate cancer survival is related to many factors, especially the extent of the tumor at the time of diagnosis. In fact, the five-year relative survival among men with localized prostate cancer, that is cancer confined to the prostate, or with just regional spread is 100%, compared to only 29.3% among those diagnosed with distant metastasis. Because chances of survival are much better if the cancer is detected early, effective cancer screening is extremely important. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonja Portillo, and this is the Young in Brief. Traditional screening tools, while effective, possess some challenges of their own. Researchers are currently working towards creating better, less invasive, and more accessible screening tools for patients everywhere. And they're finding ways to screen patients more effectively while reducing the numbers of false positives and false negatives that may arise. And while research is critical in improving cancer survivorship, there's a huge role for patient advocacy groups to get the word out about what's going on in the cancer research world and to educate and reach patients in ways that research alone could not do. Even with new tools being developed, and with screenings becoming more and more effective, socioeconomic and geographic factors can also contribute to how frequently people are getting cancer screenings. Cancer advocacy groups often try to combat these disparities by providing education and service for those in areas of need. But that isn't all that cancer advocacy groups do. 
Advocacy groups also take on the role of educating patients about clinical trials and why clinical trials are so important, where they can access clinical trials, and how they can maintain a good quality of life. Patient advocacy groups have made and will continue to make numerous contributions in cancer. They play an important role in fundraising for research and, at a national level, will help in lobbying Congress to support and raise funds for cancer research. On a local level, there are examples of advocates raising money for research at just about every cancer center in the country. It is hard to believe that there was a time when researchers did not recognize the abilities of patient advocates to contribute to the scientific discussion to the extent that they do today. However, this has changed dramatically during the past decade. Patient advocates are increasingly considered a valuable and important part of the scientific peer review process. In fact, patient advocates have been making an effort to improve their knowledge of the scientific and clinical issues related to the disease which they are dealing with in order to understand key research issues and develop relationships between researchers and others working in the industry. While progress is being made, it is important to remember that there is always room for growth and further education on both sides. Researchers and patient advocates should make an effort to engage in joint problem-solving around key issues, such as increased clinical trial participation, providing research results to participants, and educating the public on screening procedures and the cancer risk factors. Having a scientific knowledge base will increase the importance of advocates to the process. Meanwhile, researchers should recognize the value that advocates bring to cancer research and reach out to them as valuable allies in the fight against cancer. For any patient advocates who would like to contribute to cancer research, there are a couple key steps to make sure you have an impact as an advocate. First off, think long term. Change does not happen overnight, and it's important to remember this and not be discouraged if you don't see your efforts paying off right away. It's also important to learn about the science of the disease you're dealing with, so you can communicate effectively with the research community. Similarly, learn how the system works so you're equipped with the best knowledge on how to make a difference or successful change within that system. Another key step is to establish a trust relationship by demonstrating how you can support cancer research in a meaningful way, a way that researchers value. If you, as a patient or loved one, are not sure what they would value, go ahead and ask them to find out. This will allow you to be a better collaborator, which means listening to the other's point of view, communicating, checking for understanding, and making concessions. Above all, it's important to remember not to be dissuaded if researchers do not engage right away, or if it's difficult to reach out or press your ideas forward. Remember that the common goal is about finding answers for cancer patients, and your role as a patient advocate, no matter how large or small, is crucial to pushing this goal forward. This edition of the Oncozine Brief was originally recorded on April 17, 2018, during the annual meeting for the American Association for Cancer Research, AACR. The mission of the American Association for Cancer Research is to prevent and cure cancer through research, education, communication, and collaboration. The AACR was founded in 1907 by a group of 11 physicians and scientists. These physicians and scientists were interested in research designed to further the investigation and spread the knowledge of cancer. Today, the organization fosters research in cancer and related biomedical science through its programs and services, and accelerates the distribution of new research findings among scientists and others dedicated to the conquest of cancer. The AACR also promotes science education and training, and advances the understanding of cancer cause, prevention, diagnosis, and treatment throughout the world. 
For more information about the AACR, please visit the organization's website at aacr.org. For us here at the Oncuzine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio in addition to PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and UK Health Radio. You can also download our program via iTunes and Google+. Our program can also be heard every Saturday between 1 and 2 p.m. in Arizona on KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that and how to support this program, check our online journal, Oncazine, at oncazine.com. For more information about our program and how to support this program, visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash theoncazinebrief. We know that based on this interview, you may have questions, so please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. We'll post as many answers as we can on our website, Oncozine, that is oncozine.com, O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E.com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our weekly Oncozine newsletter, text the word CANCER, that is C-A-N-C-E-R, or CANCER, to 66866. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncozine Brief. The Oncozine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it. The Oncocene Brief is in part made possible by generous support from Kite Rocket. Kite Rocket, making brands more valuable. For more information about public relation beyond classic PR support, contact Martin Pirick at Kite Rocket in Phoenix at 602-443-0030 or visit their website at kiterocket.com.